A mission is a movement. It's a thing. It's a dream. A powerful display of love across a foreign sea or contained within a ring. My neighbor calls for hope, for help, for life, for something to believe because it cannot seem to be more than it seems to be. A reaching out, a helping hand, a grace-filled word, a heart to men. A mission is a movement to live among the poor, to be a better neighbor and a steward of my stuff. For every person that I see, two or five in poverty chained to the ground, like the girls in Thailand and Greece and even in our own streets. I'm filled with disgust at institutional lust and cry out for mercy and freedom for those who have been taken. A mission is a movement to care for the sick and the wounded, to show them what Christ is about. For all of my neighbors who have been told they have AIDS, I'm called to be with them and stand in their grief. And for the 5% of people I see that live with HIV, and I know it's higher than that, the situation is more dire than that. A mission is a movement to know the spirit and the God who is sending me out, to be more creative, to speak peace in places of war, choosing forgiveness over radical blame, transformed through reconciliation with spiral before into conflict and chaos and lives that were mourned. A mission is a movement, a mandate to act, not passively pass, but bring up my skills and creator who gave them. A mission is a movement of ordinary people, empowered by God's spirit, Doing what Jesus did together, wherever they are. A mission is a movement. Turn to your neighbor and say, You got an A. Everybody gets an A on the NCCs. Doesn't that feel good? Everybody got an A. Thanks for uh, allowing us the five or six minutes to uh, walk through that survey. I think it helps us serve you. Uh, better, get a better handle on who we are and, uh, and how we can be the church that God's called us to be. Uh, this week we wrap up what has been an unbelievable series. I've got to say, I've sat back for the, the last three weeks and each week I've said, I can't believe I get to be a part of this church. What a mission. I love what God is doing. Uh, God is on the move and we just need to keep up. Uh, Everything about this series has been incredible from the, for, from the, the documentary um, last week about Change Boys commissioning uh, a couple who's been a part of this church to go back to Ethiopia uh, as we get ready to launch our dream center to have Matthew Barnett here and, and share about what God's done in L.A. Uh, and then A18 Innovate, uh, if you've been a part of some of the special evenings, it has been an incredible series, and I hope I don't ruin it. But I'm going to try to see if I can help us get a sense of where we've come from, where we are, and where we're headed as we move forward into what God has for us this coming year. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn over to Joshua chapter 3, and we'll get there in a moment. But, but I just had a thought, you know, I was just going to turn right there, and it'd be nice and, and easy to just read that, and, and uh, here are the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan River getting ready to go into the promised land. They take Jericho, and the rest is history. But then you wouldn't fully appreciate how they got there. Now, I think right next to the genealogies, how many of you love the genealogies? 
you live in the genealogies, just so inspiring. You read them over and over again. Uh, next to the genealogies are the itineraries. These uh, mapping of, of where the, the people of Israel have been and where they can't. But, but stick with me for a minute, okay? Numbers chapter 33, and we'll get to Joshua 3 in just a moment. This is the itinerary the Israelites followed as they marched out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's direction, Moses kept a written record of their progress. These are the stages of their march, identified by the different places they stopped along the way. They set out from the city of Ramses on the morning after the first Passover celebration in early spring. The people of Israel left defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians. Meanwhile, the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn sons whom the Lord had killed the night before. The Lord had defeated the gods of Egypt that night with great acts of judgment. Verse 5. After leaving Ramses, the Israelites set up camp at Succoth. Then they left Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. By the way, if you don't know how to pronounce these names, you just say them confidently and nobody will know the difference. <laughs> they left Etham and turned back towards Pi-Hihiroth, opposite Baal Zephron, and they camped near Migdal. They left Pi-Hihiroth and crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness beyond. Then they traveled for three days into the Etham wilderness and camped at Marah. Left Marah, camped at Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Thank you for that detail. <laughs> they left Elam, camped beside the Red Sea. They left the Red Sea, camped at the Sin Desert, left the Sin Desert. And, and it goes on and on and on. Are you getting the point? Do, should I read the whole thing? Um, thank you uh, for shutting me down. But it goes on and on all the way till the very last, verse 48, they left the mountains east of the river and camped on the plains of Moab beside the Jordan River across from Jericho. And that's where we're at in Joshua 3. Now, why... Why, why would you take time to even read this? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, is there something you don't know about your pastor? I used to be a travel agent. Part-time, but I had an IATA card. Did you know this? Yeah, it's true. Um, wasn't so much to book trips for other people, but we were traveling a lot, and, and it got some great discounts. And uh, in order to get the discount, you had to create a travel agent card, business card, that you would then present uh, when you checked in in a hotel or to, you know, even you know, bump up to first class or whatever. Would you like to know what my business card said? Yeah. Our travel agency business, which I never actually booked a trip for someone else, <laughs> uh, the, the model right there on the front of the card was... Where do you think you're going? <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Um, the response was less than what I anticipated. But as a travel agent, I appreciate this, the itinerary piece. It feels like a triple A trip tick. I don't know if they still do that. But it's this mapping out of every place they'd ever been. And we're sitting here thinking, like, I could care less. I don't even know how to pronounce these names. But if you were an Israelite... You would have memories from each one of those places, maybe especially uh, where there were the 12 springs of water and the 70 palm trees. But you would remember these places. Each one would be significant because you can't get to the next place without being where you are. 
Each one was a, a place where God had been faithful. God had gotten them to that place and then took them to the next place until they finally got to the Jordan River. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Akasia Grove and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River where they camped before crossing. Verse 5. Then Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And we're going to come back and talk about that in just a minute. Verse 8, give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop there. Okay, this is the moment. Have you ever had one of those moments where this is the moment that you've kind of waited for your entire life? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me, uh, having uh, been married uh, and having officiated a lot of weddings, is I love that that walk down the aisle. Like, like it's just, man, you have waited your whole life to take these few steps to an altar, uh, to give yourself to another person and live happily ever after. That moment is an incredible moment. It's a moment that you kind of anticipate and wait for. In the very same sense, I think the Israelites anticipated this moment when they would finally walk into the promised land and claim a 400-year-old promise. They've been waiting for this their entire lives. Only a river stood between them and their destiny, them and their promise, uh, them and their dream. All they had to do was step into the river. And if they would step into the river, they would see God move on their behalf in some powerful ways. Now, it was that step that was the hardest step. But it was also all of these other stages and steps along the way that brought them to this point in the journey. We as a church have two core convictions. One, is that God will bless us in proportion to how we give to missions, and two, that God will bless us in proportion to how we care for the poor in our city. These are not convictions that came out of thin air. Uh, these are convictions that came out of some blood, sweat, and tears uh, after serving our community, serving our city over the last 16 going on 17 years. These are hard-fought convictions that guide us, not the circumstances around us, not situations, not trends. No, we're guided by convictions. We believe that we're about missions and we're about caring for the poor in our city. Have we always lived up to our potential? No. Could we do better? Absolutely. But this is who we are and this is what we're about. And the question is, how did we get here? What were the stages in the journey? What's the itinerary that's brought us to this point? Because I don't know about you, but I feel like we're on the banks of the Jordan River. It's called the Anacostia, and we're about to cross the river and do something in a part of our city that desperately needs it, and we will never be the same. I believe that we're on the verge of, of the most significant thing that we've ever done, and I believe it's the Dream Center. It's not about the bricks and mortar. It's about us making a concerted effort and saying, we, not in our backyard, not on our watch, we're going to go into that part of the city and we're going to be the hands and the feet of Christ. And you've heard about it over the last couple of weeks. But how do we get to this point? Before we talk about crossing the river and stepping into our destiny, our promise, our dream, how do we get here? Well, 
I think if you reverse engineer National Community Church, you find the double helix are these two convictions. But how did they come about? Well, I think for the first one, that God's going to bless us in proportion to how we give to missions. Um, I think it predates National Community Church. Uh, Let me go way back. I I grew up uh, in a number of different churches, but ultimately landed uh, when I was in eighth grade at Calvary Church in Naperville, Illinois. And my future father-in-law, who I had no idea would be my future father-in-law because I didn't even know he had a daughter for about three years because the church was that big, um, was my pastor. And I've never met anybody in my life with a bigger heart for missions. It seemed like we had 17 missions conventions a year. It's like all that ever happened were like missionaries coming through and like it was all about let's give everything to missions. And uh, for many years, it was the leading missions giving church in the entire Assemblies of God. And one of the leading missions giving churches in the country. I mean, 25 years ago, they were giving millions and millions of dollars to missions every year. It was the heartbeat of the church. And so I think before I even started pastoring this church, I think it was a part of our DNA as a family, a part of our legacy. I remember as a teenager making my first faith promise. That that was a church where if you're tithing, I mean, that's okay. But it's like when you really start giving above and beyond that, that's when you're going to, you know, step out in faith and see God moving. So I remember um, I was about uh, 18 years old and... uh, they didn't let teenagers off the hook. I'm glad they didn't. Uh, I made my first faith promise to missions. Now, it's called a faith promise because uh, it wasn't based on your financial planning or budgeting. It was based on faith. And it was a number that you'd pray about and say, God, what do you want me to do for missions? And, uh, and then it was a promise to the Lord. It was between you and God. It's not like the church would come knocking on the door, but it was a way of stretching yourself and saying, you know what, God, I want to give above and beyond, and let's see what happens. I don't remember what my first faith promise was. It might have been 100, 200 bucks, but you know, at that point, you know, this, I wasn't even a travel agent yet. Uh, I was working at a gas station. That was my first job, and that was a ditch digger one summer, and that was a painter for about three days until I got fired. Um, I've been a number of different things, but I wasn't, you know, well, not the big bucks. I was just kind of making ends meet, uh, making my way through school. But I remember making that faith promise, and I remember meeting that promise. And in a small way, um, it kind of shaped uh, the way I think about finances and, and just the belief that I want to give above and beyond my ability so that I can see God move in my life above and beyond my ability. Fast forward. 1996, start pastoring this core group of 19 people, uh, and it, it's not easy. Um, our, our first summer w- was so tough because half of that core group were college students. And so we'd have 12 or 13 people in a service. Uh, total income, monthly income was $2,000 a month. And we were paying $1,600 to rent the D.C. public school where we met before we landed at Union Station. That left $400 for our salary and all other expenses. We were barely making it. There was one church that gave us $500 a month, and it was like a lifeline. And I remember one other church one time giving us $5,000 and feeling like, you know, we had won the lottery. And, and, but it, it was those gifts that helped us kind of survive. And so 
July and August were tough, tough months. And, and it was in August of that year that, that I felt like the Lord spoke to me. But it wasn't what I wanted to hear. In fact, I kind of wonder if he misspoke or I misheard. Because I felt like God said, I want you to start giving to missions. And, and I pretty quickly wanted to say, Lord, I think what you meant was, you meant to say that to someone else because we're the missionary. And what we need here is someone else to be given to us because we weren't a self-supporting church. We were barely, you know, head above the water surviving. And, and I remember thinking to myself, God, that doesn't even make sense. We're not even self-supporting. Like, you know, I mean, kind of funny, a little dialogue with God. Is that even good stewardship? You know, how can we give what we don't have? And just kind of one, one of these little arguments. How many of you ever had an argument with God? Here's what I've learned. If you win that argument, you lose. And if you lose that argument, you win. And I think it's the lesson I learned in, in August of 96 when I decided to lose an argument and say, all right, God, we're going to start giving them missions. This does not make sense to me because we're the missionaries, but here we go. I remember writing that first $50 check, and, and it was so hard to write that check. Um, I had to about pry it out of my hands and, and thinking, what are we doing? Like, we need that 50 bucks. Um, we gave that check, and I don't know how else to describe it, but the next month, September of 96, no growth spurt, you know, no one walked in, no like major gift. The next month, our income tripled to $6,000 a month, and we never looked back. I remember thinking to myself, maybe Luke 6.38 is true. Given to be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you from that day to this, we have made a determination that for starters, we would never not tithe as a church to missions. That out of the income that, that God blesses us with in your faithfulness and giving, that we would never not tithe a portion of that, just as we tithe a portion of our income to the church. We wanted the church to at least tithe a portion of their income back to God and uh and so historically, we've been somewhere between 16, 17, 19 percent. Uh, so almost the double tithe that we've given to missions. And uh, I pray that the day comes that we're able to give 50 percent of our income to missions. That was a defining moment. We decided we're going to give. We're going to give till it hurts. We're going to stretch. And even when it doesn't add up, we're going to trust. That if we invest in what God is going to do around the world, that God's going to take care of this church. Last year, we gave $1,384,000 to missions. It started with 50 bucks. It started with us saying we are going to be faithful in the little things, and we are going to see what God does. Next year, we'll take 25 missions trips. Praise God. Listen, we're going to see thousands of lives touched through those different trips as we reach out to different parts of the world and show the love of Christ. Can I tell you where it started? started in 2001 when we didn't even have enough people to field an entire missions trip. So we partnered with a church in Chicago and we said, you send half of the team, we'll send half. So we took like half a missions trip. Um, 
because that's all we could do. And, and I, I remember we went to Jamaica. In fact, we're going back there this year to work with the same Teen Challenge Center that we helped build uh, a decade ago. But, but it started with that little step. That's our itinerary. How, how do we get to this Jordan River where this coming year we'll give far more to missions, we'll take 25 trips, and we're just getting started. I think the day will come that we take 52 missions trips, that we have a team coming and going all the time. And obvious, and we've gone beyond just short term. Like we, we want to send people like Adam and Sunshine uh, to, to Ethiopia full time to, to be engaged in mission. Um, we are just getting started. But that's the itinerary that got us here, and we are going to keep on going. Let me talk about the second conviction. God's going to bless us in proportion to how we give to missions, wouldn't you, if you're the Lord of the harvest? Because it's not like when God blesses you, then, oh, great, I have a little bit extra spending cash to spend on myself. No. God blesses you more so that you can be more of a blessing. And if you are more of a blessing, then God will continue to bless you more. Why? Because he knows that you're going to put his kingdom first. And the second conviction, God will bless us in proportion to how we care for the poor in our city. Again, here's the itinerary that got us here because we're about to do something that's going to take it to a whole nother level. Uh, Our dream center is going to be a 24-7 need meeting machine that introduces people to the love of Jesus in a way that we haven't experienced before. But how do we get here? Well, you know what? Started in 1997. At that point, a church of 50 people meeting at Union Station. I remember the Lord impressed on us, hey, I, I felt like we, we needed to begin to do outreach. And uh, there was this organization called Convoy of Hope that at that point was a pretty new deal where they'd come in with groceries, partner with the church, say, hey, meet some of these needs. And then we'll have, you know, different, different things like, you know, resume writing or, uh, or um, haircuts or, you know, different things to meet physical needs. And, and then a preaching dimension where we're going to introduce people uh, to Jesus Christ. And, and I remember thinking, let's, let's do it. Um, here was the challenge. We needed 400 volunteers, and we were a church of 50 people. And we made a decision. We're not going to let that keep us from doing it. I think it was like 49 out of 50 people that were involved in like the planning of that event. And that day, other churches came around us and said, we're here, rolled up their sleeves. And that day, uh, we touched about 5,000 lives. And you know what? It began for us a journey of saying that we... We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the people who aren't here yet. We exist for the people that are around us who don't know Christ. And so fast forward, for the sake of time, to the last Convoy of Hope um, four years ago, uh, not the ones that we've done recently, but four years ago, we said, let's, let's do twice the outreach. And so I think it was like uh, 10,000 people that showed up that day, about 70 churches and organizations that partnered with us. And, and I shared this before, but it was an incredible, incredible day, delayed by one day because of the hurricane. But that day, it was such a visceral manifestation of God's love. It wasn't just us saying God loves you. It was like, hey, let's show people how God loves you and uh, doing it in a need meeting sort of way. I remember at the end of the day, we were patting ourselves on the back, feeling pretty good about what we had done. 
uh, pretty sure that we were about the holiest people on the planet that day. And that's about when the Holy Spirit said, you know, it's great, but now why don't you do this every day? Like every day? Like, no, this is something you pull off like once a decade. And, and it was like, no, no, this is something I want you to be doing on a daily basis. That day, we began the process of looking for a footprint. Not on this side of the river. We've got some wonderful, but we felt like if we're going to incarnate, we need to be in the part of our city that has the greatest need. And so we began looking, and it was the most frustrating three or four years in the world because we were literally praying blocks. We were praying over the map. We were looking at anything and everything, and there wasn't a single opportunity that surfaced. It was crazy. I think that's sometimes because God's got his timeline, and he's going to reveal it when he's good and ready. Well, we entered into a partnership with the Southeast White House, a wonderful ministry that started in 96 like us and has been reaching out to that part of the city, showing the love of Christ. And uh, the two uh, co-founders of that ministry who are dear friends of ours, who we've been in partnership with in different ways for many, many years, uh, both in their 70s, felt like it was time to hand the baton. And it was one of those moments as we met with them that it was like, okay, how did the obvious elude us? Because God set this up from the very beginning. And so we entered into a lease with the option to purchase the Southeast White House, which we will do in 2013. It's, it's a wonderful ministry. And right next to it was this little piece of property called uh, Q Street. Uh, abandoned apartment building. Doesn't look like much from the outside, but you know property values here. Assessed at half a million dollars. We got it for a $38,000 back tax Bill, miracle number one. Miracle number two, next day I'm traveling in Texas speaking at a, at a conference, a worship conference. Uh, I don't know them from Adam. Like we've known each other like, you know, for all of five minutes and the pastor gets up after I speak and says, I think we found a partner in Washington, D.C. In fact, in the next five minutes we want to raise $100,000 to invest. They didn't even know that we had gotten that property the day before. Listen to me. When God gives a vision, he makes provision. In five minutes, they raised $100,000 and said, we want to be a part of the dream that God has given you. Fast forward. Coming into this series, we knew that we would cast a vision for this dream center that... uh, we would share and give an opportunity for all of us to be shareholders in what God is going to do. And I'll, I'll talk about that uh, in just a couple of moments. We'll double back. Let me go back into Joshua and let's take a look at what it says. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Simple teaching this weekend. Uh, you know what? I think our fundamental problem is this. We try to do God's job for him. We want to do amazing things for God, but that's not our job. God wants to do amazing things for us. That's his job. Our job is to consecrate ourselves. And if we would consecrate ourselves, then I think we would see God do some amazing things. Well, what does it mean when it says consecrate yourselves? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean going to church once a week. It's not daily devotions, fasting during Lent, keeping the Ten Commandments, sharing your faith with a friend. 
Giving God the tithe, repeating the sinner's prayer, volunteering for a ministry, leading a small group, raising your hands in worship, or going on a missions trip. All of those are wonderful things. Those are good things. But that's not consecration. It's not behavior modification. It's not conformity to a code. It's not even good deeds. Consecration, by definition, means to be set apart for the Lord. All of you. For all of him. It's a complete divestiture of yourself saying that I now belong to Jesus Christ. Every ounce of energy, every second of time, every penny of money, it's not mine. When you kneel at the foot of the cross, me and mine are no longer a part of your vocabulary. You don't belong to you. Consecration is all of me for all of God. It's a recognition that everything I have is from God and for God. About 100 years ago, British revivalist uh, said these words. The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. In the audience that night was a guy named D.L. Moody. And those words didn't just fire across his synapses and into his auditory cortex. They fired into his soul and something triggered deep within him. You know what? Here's what happened. That call to consecration defined his life. And then his life in turn, I think, came pretty close to defining consecration. He made an incredible impact on his generation. Did you know in 1893, his sermons were literally front page news. They were printed by the New York Times Sunday edition. Wow. Um, And long after his death, Moody Bible Institute, Moody Church, uh, Moody Publishing. You know, he's indirectly influencing millions of people still. Why? Because there was a moment when he said, I'm going to consecrate myself to God. This weekend is not about a dream, a mission trip. It's, I want to see God do amazing things. And if we're going to see God do amazing things, then I've got to consecrate myself to him in a new way. God's got to do something new in my heart. It's the only way it's going to happen. And you've got to get to the point where there's such a hunger for God that nothing else matters. And where you say, God, I don't care what kind of sacrifice it takes. At the end of the day, I'm going to seek your kingdom first. Why not you? Why not now? The world still has yet to see what God can do through one person, wholly consecrated to him. And if we would consecrate ourselves to the Lord, then we would see God do amazing things. I want to challenge every NCCer to be a part of this vision. And I make no apologies for it. We're about to cross a river, and it's where God has called us to go. I am as sure of this as anything I have been as long as I have led this church. You know what? I want you to know that Laura and I are going to lead the way before we cast this vision. Laura and I uh, talked and prayed and thought about, God, what, what do you want us to do? We want to be a shareholder. We're going to make a pledge. But what, what does that look like? And, and uh, 
And so it was probably uh, four weeks ago that we said, all right. We felt like God gave us a number, uh, by far the largest gift that we had ever given to anything, for anything. Um, it was a stretch, and we were so excited. thought, oh, this just feels so good and so right. Um, let's do it. And, and so we made that, that pledge, and it was the next day that we discovered that someone was going to give National Community Church a matching grant. And so we need to raise $3.8 million to build out this Dream Center, but that meant that, well, we get 1.9, we have 1.9 to match it. What it meant is every gift is doubled. And, and I remember just, it was totally unanticipated, unexpected, and, uh, and I remember thinking to myself, this is awesome because now we can give half, half as much and it'll equal our pledge. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I remember thinking to myself, wow, we stretch, but man, it feels even better now because it's going to go twice as far. And so week one, we're sitting in the service and I'm listening to Matthew Barnett and I'm just, wow, thinking what a, what a powerful challenge. And at the end of that message, I'm just like, oh, so excited about what God's going to do. And we're worshiping the Lord. And, uh, and I felt like the Lord said to me, I want you to give twice as much. I remember thinking to myself, you know, in some ways, like give half as much, it'll equal what you were going to do. And, but, but in that moment, I was pretty certain it was from the Lord. And the Lord said, I want you to give twice as much. And so Laura and I talked about it. And we decided to double our pledge. And then the next week, Pastor Joel and Pastor Dave were preaching. And uh, I was so moved. And again, in worship, after that message, I felt like the Lord said, I want you to double what you're going to do. All I'm going to say is, it's a good thing this was a three-week series. Because <laughs> uh, we about went broke. But we decided to double our pledge twice. Now, why, why do I share that with you? Because we mean business. And we're going to be about the Father's business. You know what? This is between you and God. But I want to challenge you to be a shareholder in this vision. Let me tell you where we're at to date. We told you week one to take that pledge card to pray about it. But I think this is the weekend that we act on it. Not, not out of any kind of external pressure. And if you aren't ready, don't do it. And don't do it because of anything I've said. I pray that the Holy Spirit would just speak to your heart and you would know what it is that, that God wants you to do and how you can be a part of this vision. But here's where we are. Uh, thus far, uh, total gifts uh, during this series have been $105,000, praise God, match, that's $210,000. Uh, in pledges, uh, 74 pledges made, and I'm believing that we'll have several thousand because we're believing that everybody who calls this their church home will be a shareholder in the vision, and I'm believing that God's going to raise up other churches across the country to partner with us, but this is not about them. This is about us. This is about us as a church family saying, we're going to step up and we're going to invest in this vision. 74 pledges totaling uh, $822,900. You double it with the matching gift, 
It's $1,645,800. Can we just stop right now and give God some praise for that? We're halfway there, and we've hardly gotten started. So you know what? I'm not going to do a song and dance. Um, I'm not going to dance around it either. I want to challenge you to make a pledge. Here's what you do. You pray about it. You say, God, what, how can I be a part of this? What part can I play? And, and then, in my experience, God will begin to speak to you. You know what? I would encourage you to make it a sacrifice, something that you have to even give something up in order to fulfill that pledge. By the way, the matching gift isn't just for gifts given this year. It is a matching gift through 2013. So every penny that's given towards the Dream Center until the end of 2013 will be doubled. Think about it. Pray about it. And then it's as simple as taking that pledge card that's in your bulletin and filling it out and saying, God, here is my act of praise. Here's my act of worship. And in the process of doing it, here's what I believe. It's the way that we're going to step into the river. That's the next step. It says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. But what did it say? said to the priest, you've got to step into the river. And it wasn't until they stepped into the river that God parted that river so they could enter into the promised land. I just believe that by making a pledge, it's your way of saying, God, I'm going to get my feet wet. I'm going to be a part of this vision. And, uh, and we're going to see what God is going to do. I'm going to close with this, and then we're done. In 1976, Apple was co-founded by three men. Steve Jobs, most famous of the three, eventually became chairman and CEO of Apple. Uh, Steve Wozniak, you probably heard his name, uh, single-handedly invented the Apple I and Apple II. Uh, but many of you probably never heard of the, the third member of the Apple Trinity, uh, Ronald Wayne. It was Wayne who drew up the first logo, created the first manual, wrote the original partnership agreement. Ronald Wayne had a 10% uh, share in Apple, 10%. But less than two weeks after getting a 10% stake, he sold it for 800 bucks. There are now 940 million shares, uh, tradable shares, uh, and they closed Friday at 540 a share, I think. If my math is right, that 10% 10 stake would be worth uh, $51.7 billion. And he sold it for $800. My point, don't be Ronald Wayne. (laughs) Uh, Compound interest for eternity, eternal dividends. You will never make an investment with a greater return on investment than an investment you make in the kingdom of God. This is the surest investment I think I've ever made. Lauren, I can't wait to see what the return on investment is. And I'll tell you what it is. It's not bricks and mortar. But it's about us having a foothold in a dark part of our city where we are going to be the light and love of Christ. And we're going to show that love in a way 
that hundreds and thousands are going to experience the love of God in a tangible way for the very first time. And in the process, they're going to give their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And heaven will be populated in the process. Let's pray. Father, help us respond to your word, to your leading, to your prompting, to your Holy Spirit. God, thank you that we're a part of something that's bigger than us, that's more important than us, that's not just longer lasting, but something that is eternal, that makes an eternal difference. And God, I pray that every single penny pledged and invested in this Dream Center would go to serve the very purpose for which it was given, that every penny of it would translate not just into a dream center, but into a ministry that is reaching out to our city 24-7 so that others can experience the love of Christ. God, I pray that not a person would walk out of this place making excuses or offended by the fact that we're talking about giving. God, I pray that every person would walk out looking in the mirror and saying, you know what? I'm going to be a part of what God is doing. God, I pray that each one of us would be a shareholder in your kingdom. God, we give it and pledge it with hearts filled with gratitude, acknowledging that every good and perfect gift comes from you, and we can't wait to see what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.